Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, Portuguese top chef Nuno Mendes on his new London restaurant Lisboeta and why the feeling of community matters in hospitality. I always feel like part of what you do is to add a bit of yourself to it and so I think it has its own identity, you know. The cuisine has its own identity. Then we head to Helsinki to check in on the latest coffee trends and roasting techniques. Many even smaller cities and towns have their own roasteries uh, who are, you know, doing uh, good stuff with uh, traceability and everything. You know, people are very, of course, concerned about the well-being of the whole production chain. All that and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. Portuguese chef Nuno Mendes has long been pioneering his country's cuisine in London. Now he calls his latest restaurant a love letter to Lisbon, the city where he grew up in. And it's true that when you step inside Lisboeta on Charlotte Street, you can almost imagine being transported to Portugal thanks to the food, drink and the great design of the restaurant. Nuno joined me in the studio recently to talk about the launch, evolution of Portuguese cuisine and the idea of a meeting point he wanted to create. But first I asked Nuno about the neighborhood of Fitzrovia where his new restaurant is situated and how much community matters. Well, I mean, for me, I think it's critical and I think a restaurant needs to be shaped around the neighborhood it's in. You know, the concept of Lisboeta is very much a, you know, we want it to be a neighborhood restaurant and I feel like Fitzrovia... It is, for me, a new neighborhood, but I feel like it is a neighborhood. It has a real, has its own pulse and has a real sense of identity, of unique identity. There's a lot of very interesting businesses around, but there's also a lot of uh, local community. And I think uh, an open-minded, open community that seemed to be well-receptive to Lisboeta, yeah. Nuno, what are your thoughts then about the role restaurants can play in shaping areas? You said earlier that you should take the neighborhood into account when you create a restaurant, but does it work the other way around too? Can restaurants change areas? I'm thinking about when I moved to London 11 years ago, you were running the restaurant Via Jante in Bethnal Green, and that place went through a massive transformation. I think, I mean, look, I think with restaurants, I think it's a social hub, right? And I think you become a focal point of the neighborhood in some ways. You know, I think with Viajante, we had obviously, it wasn't that, you know, Viajante's destination restaurant, but we had within the same building, we had the corner room that was very much a local neighborhood restaurant. And I wanted to engage my friends in that community, the friends that lived around there, the artists around there, friend, you know, just the young parents, etc., that lived in that area that I wanted to engage with them. And I wanted them to give them a space where they can populate that had the same energy that Viajante had, but a much more affordable price point. And I think that this is, even with the firehouse, I think despite the destination, I think it still is a neighborhood restaurant. And I think what we have at Lisboeta, I mean, for me is, again, my goal is for it to be a local a neighborhood restaurant, but that could also turn into a destination. When you talk about a local neighborhood restaurant, I would imagine that one important thing to take into account is accessibility. What are your thoughts about that? Because in a way, you combine fine dining and at the same time, you want to be very accessible. Exactly. I mean, I think a modern restaurant needs to be able to change gears very quickly and to be able to offer an experience and to allow for a guest to come in. You know, like, I mean, I feel like we're friendly engaging neighborhood restaurant. I mean, we just started, but I feel like we are, we're welcoming the neighborhood well. But it's the kind of place where our guests can come in and they can, you know, literally like they can come in, have a glass of wine, maybe have a couple of snacks. And then they say, actually, like, you know what? 
I like it. I'm going to stick around. I mean, it is very busy now, which is great. But I feel like as the time goes on, I think this will become more the premise of the place, a place where you can walk in, have a glass of wine, have a beer or have a coffee and then have a custard tart to be fine or something like that. And then they're like, well, actually, like I'm going to stick around still a little longer. So I think it has that. But then if you want to, you can come in with friends and you can go for a full meal. And then you can go all out. You can get like, you know, the Adega, the Portuguese wines and all that. You can really go, go a bit crazy. I did visit your restaurant <laughs> and what I found intriguing is how many staff members you had worked with before. I'm wondering, what's your recipe for keeping staff? Man, I try to take care of them. Look, I, a lot of people say that. But you know, like when you look when you look behind when you close the door, you look behind closed doors, not necessarily the case all the time. But look, yeah, I mean I try to take good care of our team. I think I try to create environments where there's a bit of a family environment. I feel like it's important to have a like family feel. You know, I'd like to make sure they always have a voice. I try to look after them, I try to get them engaged with the place and also have a sense of ownership of belonging and, and also like, you know, creating a nice sort of a perspective of growth when they come with us. I mean, a lot of them stay with us for a long time because they grow. Give them a platform to grow. I mean, you know, we try to obviously give them a, a nice work-life balance. Try to de-stress as much as possible, you know, what it is a stressful, reasonably stressful sort of career path. Then try to, I don't know, I mean, the kitchens are nice. I mean, like, you know, we try to open kitchens. So the environment, the work, you know, try to give them a good kit to work with. The fact that, for one, like, you know, some of them actually serve the food, but they do it because they like it. They enjoy, like, the engagement with the guests. When you look back at 20, 30 years ago, when, you know, like, being a chef, in many cases, like, being in a very, very small basement kitchen, just working away and just sending the food into a lift and that disappears into who knows where. I think all that's gone, you know, and I think so the environments that I've tried to create are, like, a little more friendly than that. So now that your restaurant is open, how do you explain the concept of that restaurant to those listeners of ours who haven't been to this place? It's a little slice of Lisbon. I think it's inspired. It's a modern take on a Lisbon eatery set in London. So, I mean, the space gap is a critical one because it gives us also a little bit more room. And obviously, like, you know, we try to bring Portuguese ideas, some Portuguese ingredients, some Portuguese tradition, And some good stories and some, you know, a little bit of uh, our gastronomic diversity and the culture that we've had. How much were you thinking about authenticity when you were thinking about the menu and what you're doing there? It's very hard to do a 100% traditional, completely authentic Portuguese restaurant. And I never really felt that I should set out to do that here because, I mean, the constraints, I mean, like, you know, Brexit, one of them, I mean, just obviously the access to the product makes it very, very difficult to do that. But it is... I think it does capture the essence of what's happening in Lisbon now, especially with the new wave, uh, a mixture between the old school places and the new places that are happening, that are popping up around Lisbon. I mean, the product and the way we cook it is very much Portuguese, or some of the product and the way we cook it is very much Portuguese. I always feel like part of what you do is to add a bit of yourself to it. And so I think it has its own identity, you know. The cuisine has its own identity. And also the space has its own identity. When I went there, I felt like I could have been in Lisbon and I understand that you've been using some Portuguese talent in deciding that space. Huge talent, huge talent. My dear friend João, I mean, he's an incredible architect and a really good friend. And, and he's from Lisbon. So he did the interior designs. I always like to get involved. So we, you know, like we, it was a really cool dialogue. And uh, Jake and Marco from MJMK, they also got involved because for Marco is also very personal because obviously he's Portuguese as well. And then, you know, João's brother, funny enough, he actually did the branding for us. Mm -hmm. So the design, so it's almost like a family thing. I think 
it evokes Lisbon, but I feel like it's not pastiche. You know? Like I mean, like when you walk in, maybe you do feel like you're in Lisbon, but you don't. You can't say, "Oh yeah, there's a place just like this place." In Lisbon. You know, it is. It's Lisbon in your mind, and I think this is what the food. I think perhaps that's a good way to look at how the food is. I mean, it's kind of like Lisbon in your mind. You know, like it's not a, exactly Lisbon, but I think it's an interesting rendition, I guess, of it. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm wondering. Obviously, the restaurant has been open for some weeks now. <laughs> how stressful is this phase when you are? Do you read reviews, for example? Do, um, do you read what critics write about what they've been enjoying at your place? I tend to not read too much, honestly. Honestly, I mean, I've read a little bit of Jimmy's review, which was incredibly positive. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like I try not to read reviews, good and negative. And if it's a really negative, but there's a lot of objective points, I read it because I feel like I should. Do you think you can learn something from those of reviews? Of course. Of course you have to. I feel like, you know, I'm quite stubborn, but I do feel like it's nice to have different perspectives and just to see what other people, how other people see things that perhaps you look at every day and for you is just perfectly normal. I'm not saying that like the impact of those negative reviews have made me shift the way I'm operating or anything like that. Not at all. But it's interesting to read. And sometimes like there's valid points that you like, look, you know, it's true. You know, perhaps there's something to learn from that. But yeah, I try not to read them too much. The good ones and the bad ones. I don't know. I feel like it's an opinion. You know, some of them have been very positive And, you know, I think when I look at it overall, I think they've been very positive. But I try, I don't know. I try not to read them. I keep them for my kids. And I keep them and I have a stack of them under beds and stuff like that. All this like papers that hopefully my kids one day they can look at it if they want to when they're older or they can just pick it up and just throw it in the bin or whatever. It's there if they want to. At some point we talked about your one of your former restaurants, Viajante, <laughs> how it oh. maybe changed a bit of East London and East London is very different now. I guess Lisbon is quite different now as well if you look at what's been it happening is. in the last 11, 12 years. How do yeah. you see that change? It's honestly like it's incredible. I mean... I think we spoke about this before, actually, here. I mean, many years ago, when I sat on this chair, on one of these chairs. I mean, the Lisbon that we see now, and people talk about and get crazy about, it's incredible. But, I mean, I'm 49 years old. I was born in Lisbon. I saw the Lisbon of, there was quite a few shades dimmer with abandoned buildings, with the economy in shambles, corruption, drugs. I mean, like, you know, the city plagued by a lot of problems a country played by a lot of problems. And I lived through that. And I saw a lot of, you know, I have a lot of friends that went down with that. So I think to see this Lisbon now, it's, I mean, it's something that I wish my dad would have had a chance to see, you know, because it's something that was so intense. It's so nice to see people positive and happy with a sense of pride in where they stand, seeing beautiful buildings being, you know, picked up, seeing our tradition, you know, being valued more by us by Portuguese, you know, us not being ashamed or afraid of or embarrassed by it. So to see this Lisbon now is, is incredibly, makes me incredibly proud. And I remember set, I sat with a friend of mine, journalist friend of mine, Sancha, years ago at the bar of Viajante in 2010, I think it was. She was living in Lisbon. She's like, man, like, it's hard there. But like, man, it's going to go. It's going to go. It's got to go. You got to keep pushing. You got to keep pushing. You got to keep pushing. And she did. And she's one of the people that actually kept pushing the city and the country forward and continue to promote it, to believe in it, to talk about it. And many people like that have continued to do that work and the people there that kept pushing it forward. And now I think it seems like it's going in a good place. There's a lot a lot of stuff to fix, but I feel like it's heading in a positive direction. Absolutely. And when you think about what's been happening in the last decade or so, how has your relationship with Portugal changed? And how do you see your own personal, I hate using the term journey, but how has your work in the kitchen, for example, changed? What do you make? 
what you prepare and what you think about your home country? I think my sense of my pride for my country has always been there. I think that having left and having good memories, as well as bad memories, but also having good memories of the country that I left by choice, you know, 30-odd years ago, those memories at times, you know, especially when I was living in California or in North America in general, I mean, I think... It made me sad that there's not a knowledge of our culture, of our food. I mean, a lot of people didn't even know what the bloody country was, which is embarrassing. So I've been sort of pushing, coming back to Europe and I think starting my journey in East London and trying to, most of my projects having a Portuguese name, giving it a Portuguese name, some of them, was the starting point of that. But I think a couple of things happened, critical things happened for me that really pushed me further into this. I mean, I think my kids being born my family passing away, you know, my father, my grandparents on both sides. I mean, I think that really kind of pushed me to wanting to go back more and wanting to know more and wanting to also to be able to pass that knowledge to my kids and also to celebrate that. And I feel like for a long time, like when I opened Bacchus, I was just cooking what really came to mind and it was just quite crazy. It was a bit out there and it was just experimental and it was... It was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was crazy and wild. And it was like, <laughs> but I think some people really enjoyed it. People hated it. But but I think that it was just a creative outburst, I guess. But I feel like more and more now it's becoming more focused. There's a, continues to be, hopefully, a slight creative edge to it or creativity about it. But I think it's a lot more focused on telling a story that is mine, you know, so speaking about my journey, but also speaking about my country, the country I was born in, the food I grew up eating, the cultural diversity of that country. And I think that's changed. And obviously writing the book about Lisbon, Lisboeta, I think that gave me a chance to come back to Lisbon on a regular basis to write that book. And then securing a project in Lisbon took it even further and now like bringing that to London. Which is keeping you very busy, I understand. But still, I'm wondering what you just told me about the way you reflect your own history and you reflect what's been happening in Portugal, how that country has changed and how you feel like you may be more focused. What does that mean when you are thinking about the future and you're thinking about, (laughs) you've got your dreams for the future, what you want to do at some point? Well, I mean, look, I mean, I think I said it once already, and I'll say it again. You know, I'm 49 now, like, and I feel like, you know, you get to a certain time and you start thinking like, well, I was just sitting yesterday, like at the restaurant, speaking to another chef, well-known in London, fantastic chef. And we were saying, I mean, like, you know, he's turning 50. I'm, I just turned 49. We're like, look, you know, we have, what, 10, 15 years of this career to keep going. And what do we want to do? Where do we want to go? What's in store for us? I mean, you know, and you start thinking, like, where the hell do you want to be in the next 10, 15 years? Where do you want to spend these 10, 15 years to build something? I think of my kids as well. I mean, I think the fact that the last... 20, 30 years of my life have been very fast. And I feel like I need to slow down a little bit. So a short question answered the long way. I would like to spend more time in Portugal. I have a couple of things coming up there, but I'd like to also consider maybe having a place somewhere in the countryside. I love the Alentejo. The Alentejo is probably one of my favorite places around the world. So I'd like to maybe spend more time there. Sounds amazing. And just finally on a slightly... Lighter note. Was that heavy? No, a little bit. <laughs> oh, when sorry. you go to Portugal, where do you where do you eat and where do you drink? Where should people go to? Your recommendations. Uh, wait, you say Portugal or Lisbon? Let's focus on Lisbon now. Oh, uh, Lisbon. Well, look, I mean, I have a, a really dear friend of mine, Tose, Antonio Galapito, has a really amazing restaurant called Prado, which is really, for me, is like my favorite restaurant. The food, the wine, the fact that you feel like you walk into his house, it's a family. It's incredible. 
There's a new place that I've been to a couple of times already, which is a Tashka called Velurik, was incredible. Like it's young kids again, like they're like, they must be 23, 24. They picked up a really old Tashka. Now they're doing something really cool with it. But they're still served like wine in the Malgas and all that. So it's really nice. There's so many amazing places to go. I mean, Lisbon is, there's places left. In, I mean, like some old places, Gambrinos, the counter at Gambrinos is like, it's one of the classic places to go. I remember going there with my dad and just getting a croquette and a lambreta, like the beer, the small little beers or like a prego. There's some really good places for like a bifana, like the pork sandwiches or the custard tars. I mean, just, I don't know. Lisbon's pop, like there's amazing Goan restaurants, which are hard to find anywhere outside of Goa, really, which are incredible. There's some really good Japanese Portuguese stuff happening as well, because again, the product is so similar. Yeah, it's a fun place to eat. I mean, like you just don't stop. And it's always sunny like it is today. It's sunny and it's warm and everything's outside. You're like, it's fine. It's great. Do you ever ask why you're in London? I do that all the time. I mean, the reason, to be fair, the reason why I'm still here is because I wanted to open Lisboeta and my kids wanted to finish their school in London, but I'm looking forward to actually spending more time in Lisbon. Nuno Mendes there and his new restaurant, Lisboeta, is open in London. Let's then continue with this week's food and drink news. Here is Monocle's Emma Searle. Thanks, Marcus. Now, first to Bangladesh, where new alcohol laws are facing a once-in-a-century overhaul. The country's strict liquor laws were last updated more than 100 years ago, and sales will now be less tightly regulated. The new rules come as the country welcomes a growing number of foreigners working on infrastructure projects, and there are hopes the move will also bolster the tourism sector. While there has been some backlash from those who object to the legislation mainly on religious grounds, we're sure there are some who will be raising a glass. In alcohol news elsewhere, there are more reasons for wine lovers to visit Verona. The Italian city will soon play home to a wine museum. The Museo del Vino was officially unveiled this month and consists of a museum, visitor and exhibition centre that cost an impressive 50 million euros. Visitors will be able to learn about the history of wine, wine production and the impact of climate change on wine growing. There will also be opportunities to learn wine tasting techniques and even conduct virtual visits to wineries in augmented reality rooms. Now to downtown Brooklyn, which is welcoming a new space, but one with a bit of an ironic twist. Delivery service DoorDash, known for its ability to quickly get food to people's houses without having to venture out to a restaurant, have created a virtual food hall that also has indoor seating. The new location is connected to one of their ghost kitchens, which makes delivery food from multiple restaurants in one place, and has space for 20 people to eat in at a time. And finally this May, London ramen giants Bone Daddies will collaborate with New York ramen legend Ivan Ramen in an exciting partnership for the British city. Ivan Ramen will be bringing his breakfast ramen to London for the first time, and there's a partnership with Japan's number one beer, Asahi Super Dry. The collaboration celebrates 10 years since the first Bone Daddy's ramen bar opened in Soho, and the start of hopefully many more to come. That's all for this week. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Emma. You are with Monocle24. 
The Helsinki Coffee Festival is the largest coffee event in the Nordic countries. Finns drink more coffee per capita than any other country in the world, so we sent our Helsinki correspondent Petri Purtsov to find out what the latest trends were and how the Finnish coffee culture is changing with young roasters. Petri filed this report. The sound of coffee grinders, espresso machines and milk frothers filled the air over three days at Helsinki's old cable factory. Now in its sixth edition, the Helsinki Coffee Festival attracted over 10,000 coffee enthusiasts and 70 exhibitors this year. Helsinki Coffee Festival is basically the biggest coffee event in northern Europe. We want to give kind of the feel of the largest pop-up cafe and also the largest coffee shop in Helsinki for one weekend. That was Ida Mannonen, one of the festival's organizers. Finns drink most coffee in the world, in per capita terms, over nine kilos a year, to be precise. Traditionally, most Finns like their coffee to be lightly roasted filter coffee made from low-quality bulk coffee. But at the Helsinki Coffee Festival, People were talking about things such as single-origin coffee, cold brew, ristretto espressos and macchiatos. I asked Ida if perhaps the Finnish coffee culture was changing. More and more. And that's because there's more and more of those specialty coffee roasters as well. So the number is growing each year. Now we could say that in Finland there's over 30. And counting on how you how you specify specialty coffee roastery, there might be even up to 50. So when there's more variety, then people want to try new things. Ida then went on to explain what some of the biggest trends at this year's festival had been. I would say for a couple of years already, there's been a lot of talk about cold brew and how to drink coffee cold and what that does to the coffee flavors. And then I would say there's a lot of interest in plant milks. So I think also roasteries make more and more their espressos in a way that they taste good with oat drinks and so on. A panel of four judges handed out awards for the best espresso and the best filter coffee. I met up with the young roasters at the stand of Makia Coffee, a new roaster based in the eastern Finnish town of Lappeenanta, whose Haloberiti coffee had just won the Espresso of the Year award. I asked their founder Visa Tuovinen to describe the award-winning coffee. My name is Visa uh, and I'm an owner and a coffee roaster in a company called Makia Coffee. very short description of the coffee is that uh, there's a lot of things happening in, in the cup. Uh, we actually uh, got the second place of the filter coffee award last year with the same coffee, but now we won an espresso award with the same coffee. So that tells a lot about the coffee because it's very, very versatile. And as an espresso, you get some milk chocolate, you get some tropical fruits, you might get some nice strawberry flavors. Uh, it's juicy and all around very balanced coffee. The Finnish coffee culture is changing due to young roasters, such as Visa. There's been a big boom with small roasteries throughout the years and I don't even know all the roasteries nowadays working so premium specialty coffees are, you know, the section of the market is growing all the time. M- many even smaller cities and towns have their own roasteries uh, who are, you know, doing uh, good stuff with uh, traceability and everything. You know, people are very, of course, concerned about the well-being of the whole production chain. Usually we've been very accustomed to drinking very cheap coffee in Finland because of the price competition of the markets, uh, like the biggest market chains. But now people are getting more used to also buying uh, more expensive coffee 
if the coffee bag is 10 euros, it's uh, not a big problem to many people. And of course, web stores and web shops, you know, that's the thing nowadays. So, Ida and I, we're going to do a tasting of the coffee that won the Espresso of the Year Award at uh, this year's festival. Let's go into this. Let's taste it. Oh, it's very nice and fruity. A lot of character. How would you classify this? I would say fruity as well, definitely. But at the same, Ethiopian coffees can be quite light. But this also has nice body. So it's nice mouthfeel, even though it's really fresh and fruity. So I like it. I like it too. I'm not always the biggest fan of really fruity coffees, but this, this, as you said, this has body as well. It's just, it's not only the, the fruit, really yeah. nice. I wanted to ask you also as the coffee expert here, I mean, is there like a correct way of doing coffee tasting? Is it like, is it like a precise art, like wine tasting? How, how should you go about when you taste the coffee? It can be as precise as you want to go. There's a lot to it. But basically, um, the basics are you find basic elements such as sweetness, acidity, bitterness, saltiness even sometimes. And um, then after that, you can start picking up if it tastes like apple or caramel, maybe something else. So, so main things first and then to the smaller things afterwards. Do you need to swirl it around like you swirl around a wine glass? Yeah, I think it depends on the coffee. It, it can. For example, with the espresso, you might want to swirl it so that the crema mixes with the coffee. But sometimes it can taste nice when you don't swirl it, so it's up to you. I finally met up with Svante Hamf, whose Helsinki-based Kaffa Roastery is one of the trailblazers of the third-wave coffee movement in Finland and has been around for 15 years. Svante began by telling me how the coffee culture in Finland has changed during the time that Kaffa Roasters has been around. Yeah, there's a lot that had happened like the last 15 years. I think uh, first of all came maybe the, the third coffee wave, so really more than just a handful of people got really interested into like origin and talking about varieties and, and uh, hand brewing and, and um, transparency and, and really get into why this co- coffee tastes and you talk about like single origin coffees, single farm coffees and like really specific tastes. Uh, that was um, happening in the be- beginning. Another uh, trend is, of course, well, globally, maybe uh, light coffee is really trendy now. In Finland, it's, we drink only light coffee, uh, but it's not very good coffee. So we're, we're drinking the most coffee in the world, but um, I don't think we should be yet proud of being drinking the best coffee in the world. But there is like two trends. So one is going toward darker coffee, people that have been abroad, uh, but then there is this other third wave trend towards lighter. So we have like two different waves. For Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighborhoods for great recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Markus Hippi. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Stardust with Music Sounds Better With You. Thanks for listening. 